Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. same place spring break this year there's still some spots available the team is growing um, but there's still a few spots available so if you're interested you need to come see me or joe quickly we'd love for you to be there there's pretty significant scholarships this year available we've had some large donations uh so we, we can really help you out if finances are an issue for you i'd love to talk to you about it or i'd love joe to talk to you about it as well okay let me pray for us father we just thank you for the opportunity again to gather together as a body of believers, Father, to, to praise your name, to just to sing to you, to, to pray, Lord, to, to open up the truth of your word. I pray you just challenge us, encourage us, Father, convict us if necessary. But, but let us walk out of here, Father, differently, changed, uh, shaped, molded, transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I wanted to start just for a minute before we jump into Mark. We're going to get to Mark in just a second. Kind of in light of, of, of a situation that happened this week that many of you are probably aware of. I want to just make a couple of quick comments uh, about the new abortion law in New York State. Many of you probably at this point have already heard about it. I'm sure you've uh, seen clips. If you have not seen the signing ceremony, you ought to watch it. Uh, it's I, I don't even know how to describe it, but... The people that have signed this bill into law now are celebrating. They're excited. Uh, they've basically now said that abortion can take place at any point during the pregnancy all the way up until birth. Uh, I'm not going to preach an abortion sermon or talk a lot about that. I did that. And if you're interested, I, on September 9th, 2018, you can go look it up. I did a sermon on abortion during our tension series. But I just wanted to kind of just encourage you and, and really challenge you uh, with a couple of thoughts. The first is... Uh, when you tell people for years and years and years and years that they've evolved from nothing and that when they die, they're going to turn back into nothing, you devalue human life and you should expect these sorts of decisions because life matters less and less. But the second thing I want to really challenge you with as believers, and, and I don't have an answer for this. I've struggled with this really all week and I've thought about it and I've wrestled with it and I'm very frustrated and angry about the decision. I don't quite know what to do about it at this moment, although I'm thinking through and praying through. But I just want to challenge you with uh, maybe a scary truth that if the Christian world doesn't stand up very shortly, I believe, and do something about this, 40 weeks is going to seem tame. Because I'm telling you what's happening next. I'm just telling you. After birth abortions are the next thing down the pipeline. Now, you think I'm making that up, you think I'm silly and I'm ridiculous and I'm overstating. 2012, you go Google this if you don't believe me, Journal of Medical Ethics, 2012, this is seven years ago, said, and I quote, when circumstances occur after birth, 
such that would have justified abortion, what we call after-birth abortion should be permissible. We claim that killing a newborn could be ethically permissible in all the circumstances where abortion would be. Such circumstances include cases where the newborn has the potential to have acceptable life, but the well-being of the family is at risk. Now, you think this is absurd, this could never happen. Ten years ago, abortions at 40 weeks was absurd. And here we are. I just think as believers, we, we better be willing to stand up and, and to fight for this. I had somebody come down after the last service, and I failed to say this in the first two services. I don't know why I didn't think about this. We take a mission trip to New York every year. We've been doing it for several years now. We go into the heart of the city and minister. There's a church plant there by North American Mission Board missionary. We go and work with that missionary, Nathan Tubbs and his wife Leslie. It's prayer wall, go to the local communities and pass things out, witness for Christ. And I've seen lots of things online about I'm never going to go to New York again. I'm never going to give them a penny. I get it. I get it. But, man, they need believers. They, they desperately need people that are willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So New York is coming this summer. If you're interested, something to think about, something to pray about. Okay, let's take our Bibles. And by the way, I didn't say that about to go on the, on, on the trip to New York. I want you to go. I said it because we need to understand this is an evil, this part of our society, and if, if believers need to stand up and, and do something about it, okay? All right, Mark chapter 2. Take your Bibles, open there. We're continuing our study this morning in the gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is, is a fast action. A lot of things are happening in this Gospel. And the thing I love about this Gospel is it kind of helps us begin to see a little more into the kind of the heart of Jesus, who he was, what he wanted to try to accomplish. So in the first couple of chapters, what we've already seen, one of the main themes we've seen in Mark chapter 1 and 2 is that the fame and, and the excitement level surrounding Jesus is increasing. Right, More and more people are following him. <clears throat> He's healing people. He's doing miraculous work. The Bible says he's teaching with authority. People want to be around him. That number is going to swell up, and eventually thousands upon thousands of people are going to follow Jesus. So it's kind of in this moment of growth, uh, excitement, more and more people are following him that we read Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Look with me, if you would. We have it on the screen as well. You can follow along with us. He went out. This is Jesus again beside the sea. Remember, he's in Galilee. He's walking around the Sea of Galilee and all the towns and all the different communities, witnessing and ministering there. And the, here it is again. And the crowd was coming to him, right? There's a large crowd gathering. He was teaching them, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the what? Tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now stop for a second because I want you to understand what's going on here. Jesus is starting his ministry He's walking the Sea of Galilee all around the communities, Capernaum, and all these different places where he's going to do miracles. And in the process of his ministry, he's calling these people out to be part of his inner circle. Like There's going to be thousands of people that follow Jesus, but there are going to be 12 that he lives with, that he works with, that he teaches, that he trains, that he loves for about three years until his eventual death, burial, and resurrection. And here's the important part about the disciples. He calls them to follow him so that he can train them, teach them. They can then go into the world and share what they've learned in their time with Christ. So they've got a pretty big responsibility. There's an awful lot that Jesus is going to give them and is going to expect of them. Kind of the disciples were plan A to reach the world after Jesus ascended to heaven. There was no plan B. Pretty big deal. 
And so we, we would expect, now this is human thinking, this is Adam talking, maybe you would think the same sorts of things. We would think that Jesus would choose 12 kind of top-notch people in order to hand this responsibility to. But I want you to notice instead, Jesus has done something very different, very interesting. Here's the first truth I want you to see, and we're going to delve into it. Jesus chose the outcasts as his closest followers, right? Jesus is going to pick the lowly, the outcast, as Mark 2 is going to say in just a minute, the sinners, the people that nobody else really wants to be around. And let's kind of think through this just for a few minutes together. Mark chapter 1, Jesus has already called Peter. He's called Andrew. He's called James. He's called John. We read that just, a, I think, a week or two ago. And all four of these men that Jesus has already called are fishermen. Now, when we think of fishermen in our society, we think of, I'm going to go to the lake I'm going to stand on the bank, or maybe I'm going to get in a boat. I'm going to do this recreationally. It's fun. I get a day off. I'm going to go fish. It's something I enjoy. But for a commercial fisherman, as in the first century we read about these guys, it was a little bit different. right? These guys got up at sunrise, worked all day, sunset. They came in, crashed, did it all the next morning. They were uh, hard workers. They were probably guys that were... Uh, calloused hands, strong muscles. I mean, you think about putting this, uh, this uh, net in the lake and then pulling it back out with all these fish, a lot of hard work. They probably smelled bad. They were sweaty. They had fish smell all over them. And in the first century, by and large, fishermen were kind of looked down upon. They had harsh lives. They, they were uneducated, looked down upon in society. Fishermen weren't exactly the, the most refined people that Jesus could have chosen, right? I just envision Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, anywhere in the world now, it seems like, when there's a beautiful lake or a beautiful ocean or scenery, you kind of look up on the mountains and there are all these beautiful houses, right? Somebody's built a nice house to have this beautiful view, and you always wonder what, what it must be like to wake up every morning to that view. Jesus isn't walking around looking at the nice places and the respected places and the wealthy and the famous. Jesus is kind of down in, in the nitty-gritty of society, picking these guys that nobody else would have ever picked. Now, he's going to follow that up with something fascinating. I want you to look at verses 13 and 14 again. So he's already picked these fishermen, the, the lowest of low, looked down upon in society, uneducated. <clears throat> so he went out again by the sea. All the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them, and he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the what? Tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now, this is the time of year when we are excited about taxes, isn't it? <laughs> Woo! Here it comes. My daughter, who has a job now at TJ Maxx, and it's funny because she comes home every day. She's like, I saw all these people from church. They're all in TJ Maxx. They come through all the time. She sees all y'all. So be careful what you buy because I'm hearing about it at home, okay? That's what you're doing that. <laughs> so she gets her first check. She'd worked for a couple of weeks before Christmas. And, of course, she worked like a bunch of hours and got a good, nice little paycheck for her. She comes home excited about her check. She opens it up. You know, the first thing she said, why did they take out so many taxes? <laughs> I just hugged her. I was like, welcome to the world, honey. It's just going to get worse. We're not crazy about taxes. We're not crazy about people that take up taxes. But for us, we can laugh about it, and it's something we're not really crazy about. But in the first century, tax collectors were hated. They were hated because they took the tax that was owed to the Roman government or the local government oftentimes. And on top of that, well, they would take money in addition, so they'd line their own pockets. 
So oftentimes the tax collectors were wealthy because they pretty much stole money from the people, right? Writing about tax collectors, this is early Jewish writings. They said these people were making daily rounds, exacting payment of men with or without their consent, right? Another writer goes on to say early Jewish writings, they wrote scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes, listen to this, was disqualified as a judge or witness in court, expelled from the synagogue and a cause of disgrace to his family. Listen, the touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery, right? These are people that are hated in society. They're thieves. They've stolen. Nobody wants to see them. Nobody wants to talk to them. Nobody wants to be around them. So Jesus now, just check this out, has chosen as his closest associates fishermen and tax collectors, the lowest of the low. These are not people we would have chosen. You understand that? Like if Jesus has said to us, hey, Adam, I need you to get together a team of people and search out 12 apostles, 12 disciples, who, by the way, I'm going to live with for three years. I'm going to teach everything I know, and then I'm going to hand kind of the kingdom off to them. When I'm gone, it's their responsibility to share their faith really to the world and continue the ministry that I've started. I wouldn't pick these 12 guys. John MacArthur wrote a book called 12 Ordinary Men. It's very interesting. You should read it. It's about the 12 disciples. Here's what MacArthur says. He said they're typically elevated in a transcendent way somewhere just below God or just below Christ or in some very prominent place because the assumption is, he's talking about the disciples, that these are the highest and the best and the classiest and the most religiously ascended of all Christian masters. Nothing could be farther from the truth. They are not otherworldly. They are not nearly divine. They are not the cream of the crop among men. They're not the highest, the noblest, and the best. They're not the most educated, the most highly skilled, the most gifted, humanly speaking. They are a motley, motley group. They're very, very strange. You couldn't pull them together any other way other than God doing it for his own purposes. Like We wouldn't have picked these guys. We wouldn't have gotten these guys together and asked them to follow Jesus. In fact, what we would have done is we would have probably picked the rich, the famous, the smart, the well-educated. I think, you know, Jesus is kind of ascending in popularity. More and more people are following him. He could have leveraged that to probably have conversations with governors. Have you seen the people following me, governor? Or kings, rulers, maybe Caesar himself. But instead, Jesus picks kind of the lowest of the low, the outcasts, the fringes of society, the sinners. Now, there's two things I want you to see about this that are important. Two truths that ought to apply to our lives. The first one, as we look at what Christ did, we need to understand that God can use anybody. We miss that sometimes. Like, I have conversations with people sometimes, and they don't quite say it like this, but it kind of comes out in the conversation that they don't really believe God can use them because of X, Y, and Z in the past or because of something they've done or something they think they're going to do or where they've come from. That's not the case. Like all Jesus really requires for us to be used is to agree to follow him. Jesus said to these men, hey, follow me. 
and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, listen, I, I need to see your resume. I need to know what school you went to. What kind of GPA did you have? What sort of internship did you get out of college? Listen, all I need from you is to follow me. If you'll follow me and trust me, I'll lead you and guide you and direct you. Oftentimes we, we miss that in Scripture. God uses anybody. Here's the second thing I want you to see. It's very, very important. We need to open our eyes to see spiritual need all around us. Like it would have been easy for Jesus to walk by the sea and to see Peter and John and Andrew and James and now Levi and the tax booth and just kind of blow them off. I don't like these guys. Nobody else likes them. Why would I choose them? I don't really see a need. Instead, what he does is he stops and he has a conversation with these guys. Listen, I'm willing to talk to you. I'm willing to speak with you. I'm willing actually to bring you kind of into my close circles close circles if, you, if you'll just be willing to follow me, even though these people were very different than him oftentimes. Here's one of the things we do at church, and I'm just really excited about this upcoming year and kind of some of the things we've planned. But we try to give you opportunities to do ministry. We feel like one of our duties is to present you with opportunities to do ministry. So we've got all sorts of local things here in LaGrange. Like every Sunday, you may not know this, every Sunday night you could go to Pine Mountain. We do a Pine Mountain's Kids Club where we drive around this old yellow school bus. The guys that are down there drive this old yellow school bus around, pick up all these kids, bring them to the gym in Pine Mountain. Every Sunday night, there's a group of kids down there that people of our church are ministering to, teaching them, playing games with them, loving them in the name of Christ. Every Sunday, you could do that. We have Calumet Ministries that are available to you, Clock Tower Ministries where we have kids clubs, all sorts of local opportunities. On top of that, we've got Guatemala. You saw the video. We're going back spring break. We have India, we have New York City, we have uh, on and on the list goes Africa, the places you can go. And we do all these things to give you a chance to minister. But here's the interesting thing. This is what you need to hear. This is the interesting thing about all the different missions and ministries that we have. Oftentimes, we're ministering to people and loving people that are different than us. Did you know that? I, I go to Africa and I work with these African pastors. And other than us being human beings, we have very little in common. Different language, different culture, different backgrounds, different understanding. But Jesus says, listen, we need to open our eyes to the fact that Christ will use everybody and to the fact that there is great need all around us. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 15. It's not enough that he just walks by the sea and has a conversation with these guys. He's going to take it a step farther, right? He's talking about Levi, and it says in verse 15, as he, that's Jesus reclined at the table in his house. That's Levi. So Jesus now has called Levi. Levi has followed him. Levi has chosen to bring Jesus into his home and to have a dinner with him. They're reclining at the table. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let's stop there. The first thing we've seen is Jesus is aware of, he acknowledges, he sees all the people around him that are in need. He's willing to use those people, but here's the second truth. Jesus now is going to spend time with these outcasts and with these sinners. It's not enough that Jesus just sees them and notices it's not enough that he just has a conversation with them. It's not enough that he just calls them to follow him. He's now going to go to their house. He's going to sit with them, and he's going to eat. Now, this just drives the religious leaders crazy. Right? They've already had this problem with Jesus. Remember when, when, they, when they let the paralytic down through the roof, and Jesus heals the guy, the first thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. You remember that story last week? And the religious leaders go, whoa, who is this guy again? Because only God can forgive sins. Remember that? 
So they're already questioning him. They're already wondering. By the way, that's one of the themes we're going to notice is the religious leaders. As the uh, popularity of Christ increases, the anger and the questions of the Pharisees and religious leaders are going to increase as well. They don't like him. So now they see him laying in this uh, room or sitting in this room at this table, reclining at this table with sinners and, and with outcasts, and they see him there and they ask his disciples, listen, why is he doing this? Like, why would he defile himself? Why would he sit with these people, these sinners? These, one writer said sinners means gamblers or money launderers or people who trade the Sabbath or thieves or violent or shepherds and, of course, tax collectors. All right, so Jesus kind of demonstrates to us that he's willing to not only kind of recognize these people, have conversations with these people, he's willing to go into their home to sit with them, eat a meal with them, even when the religious leaders don't like it. Right? So he kind of proves to us that he's willing to go and do whatever it takes to reach these people. Now, this is important. right? This is where this applies to us. This is important. I want you to watch what I'm about to say here. The vast majority of us have structured our life in such a way that we're very often not around sinners and outcasts. You understand that? Like We kind of have our, our Christian world. And again, there's nothing wrong with Christian fellowship. That's a big part of what we do. You should be around other believers. That's part of what we ought to be doing. But the old saying is kind of like the longer you're a believer, the fewer unbelieving friends you have. And so we kind of created a world oftentimes where we're kind of isolating ourselves from the world. We're, we're willing to hang out with other Christians and other believers, but very rarely do we have people in our homes that are not believers for the express purpose of sharing Christ with them. So, so maybe like a, a real simple kind of litmus test you could run in your own life would be to ask yourself this question. When's the last time you had somebody in your home that you know is an unbeliever and you asked them there specifically because you wanted to talk about the things of Jesus with them? We have people at our house all the time. We love having people over. Y'all are all welcome. You can come at any time. I'll invite you in to hang out with us. You can eat dinner with us. We love people in our homes. But if I were honest with you, I would say, listen, in the last couple of years, I could probably count on one or two hands the number of times I had unbelievers in my home specifically because I wanted to share Christ with them. Like one of the coolest things we did a couple of years ago, we did a, a kind of a, a community Christmas party. And we invited all the people in the, on our little street there and the street behind us. And we had lots of people come. And we just kind of talked and fellowship. And it was a neat opportunity. We need to do that more. Why? Because this is what Jesus does. Jesus is willing to go into these places we oftentimes are not. Like imagine if I said to you, imagine if I was, I was preaching next Sunday. I said, I said something like this. Yeah, last Friday I, I was in the club. Uh, and y'all be like, what club is he talking about now? Right? Or if I said, hey. I was in the liquor store on Thursday, and I'm not going to tell anybody I saw you, but I was in the liquor store on Thursday. You'd be like, why? Why is he in the liquor store? Or if I said, hey, Friday night, I'm going down to Shorter, down to the dog track. You might want to get in the car with me and ride down to the dog track. Like, the conversations would be crazy. Why is, why is he going to the dog track? Like, What was he doing in the liquor store? We kind of have set this thing up in our, in our minds and in our lives where we kind of separate ourselves from that stuff. And again, I want to be careful. Don't go home, husbands, and tell your wife, it's okay to go to the dog track Friday. I'm not saying that. Didn't say that, okay? There needs to be some accountability, and we talked through some of that, right? But we've kind of created a world where we're completely separated from those kinds of things, those kinds of people. We're never interacting. That's not who Christ was. That's just not what he did. Like, if, if he were standing before us right now, I think he would love us and share with us and hug our necks and tell us how much he loved us. And then he'd get out of this building because he wanted to go reach people for Christ. That's what he wanted to do. 
He didn't spend his time kind of in this little area. So, so many churches, you know, kind of look at the stats across America and, and the, the hundreds and the hundreds and the hundreds and into the thousands now of churches that die every year, that lock up their doors. And what you typically see, it's not always the case, but typically what's happened over the years is they become so inward focused, they've forgotten the calling of Christ. Like we got to get out. I mean, this is a beautiful building. We're building a building. We're doing it so we can gather people to teach them and train them and equip them. But we're doing it so we can send them back out. That's the whole point. This is who Jesus is. Jesus says, listen, I'm willing to come and speak to you even though you're an outcast and nobody likes you. I love you. I'm willing to hear your story. I'm willing to invite you into my home. I'm willing to go into your home. And now the question is, what's going to happen when the scribes and the Pharisees kind of push him? So let's kind of, we got to finish up. Look at verse 16 again. So they question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, instead of getting angry or defensive, look at the answer Jesus gives. Mark chapter 2, verse 17. If you're taking notes, you ought to underline this whole section. You really ought to memorize it. Jesus heard this, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the third thing we see. Jesus came to rescue or save the outcasts and the sinners. You know, instead of distancing himself from these people, he's embracing them. He's loving them. He's spending time with them. He's trying to figure out how in the world can I get more of these people to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We had the opportunity a couple of years ago. We were going to India on a mission trip. And by the way, there's several trips this year. If you're interested, I'd love to talk to you. Incredible work going on over there. But we always fly through Europe somewhere, usually Paris or Amsterdam. In this particular trip, we had a layover in Amsterdam. So we spent the night and we decided to get out and just see the city. It's a beautiful city, great museums and Frank House is there. The canals are beautiful. But if you know anything about Amsterdam, it's one of the most liberal cities in the world when it comes to drug use and sexual sin. And so really everywhere you go in Amsterdam, you just kinda, it's just there. You see it everywhere. It's a strange sort of a, a, a connection here because you have the drug use and the sexual sin on one hand. And on the other hand, in Amsterdam, in the city, are these beautiful old churches. And they're, they're massive. And so they're, they're steeples or they're towers or whatever they've built. They're, they're just kind of towering above other parts of the city. And so you can literally look and say, look at that steeple over there. Let's go see that church. And so our team set out to walk around and see the city. And you kind of, most people in Amsterdam just walk. We would walk six or eight or ten blocks over to these cathedrals and see them and their beauty. And some of them you can go inside. And the, kind of the, the fascinating but, but really sad thing about most of these churches in Amsterdam is that one time they were thriving, large, growing churches reaching their community for Christ. Most of them now are museums. It's true. They're relics of the past. And so you pay, a, a, you know, three or four dollars or, you know, six or eight, whatever, a couple of euros, whatever it is. And they let you tour around for ten minutes. And you go in there and you realize nobody's worshiping here anymore. They're not even seats set out for a worship service. Instead, this is a, basically a museum. We can walk around and say it's a relic of the past. And I think, you know, if, if we're not careful in, in our country, they say we're, you know, 20, 25 years behind Europe in spiritual things. If we're not careful, if we don't realize that this teaching in Mark chapter 2 still applies to us, if we don't realize that we can't be inward focused, we've got to reach out to the world, we're going to become relics of the past. And we'll end up closing our doors. Why? Because we're not realizing who Christ is and what he's called us to do, who he's called us to be. Right? Jesus died for more than us just to be a country club. You know what I'm saying? There's more to our walk than just coming and hanging out and having a good time on Sunday morning. 
I, I want to finish with, with a, just a, a little section in a book that I think you're going to find fascinating. I kind of read this account of Jesus and, and so many other accounts of him in the New Testament. And the question always comes to my mind, and I know the answer, but I still wonder, like, why would he do this? Like, why would he come and walk around and, and hang out with these people and, and take the abuse he took and go through the things he had to go through? And we know the story of John 3.16. We, we know the idea of love. But if you wanted to kind of whittle it down to its, to its simplest form, Jesus came to this earth because of grace, unmerited. Like, we don't deserve it. It's hard for us to understand sometimes grace. I, I, I have a conviction that the vast majority of Christians in our world don't have a real understanding of what grace is. It's hard to understand like your salvation isn't earned, doing more good things doesn't make Jesus love you more. It's grace. He's given it to you freely. And there's a book called Proof, Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. It's written by Timothy Paul Jones, who was a professor of mine at Southern Seminary. And he tells the story about an adopted daughter that he has when he first took her to Disney World. It's a little lengthy. It's about a page and a half. Just bear with me. I want you to hear this story. And I don't want to mess it up, so I'm just going to read it to you. From the book Proof, Timothy Paul Jones. He says, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. He said, our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend, which is just unbelievable to me, by the way. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so, by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades, but when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she'd always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World. I thought I'd mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when simple requests would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier for her to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her, her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in the moment I was tempted to turn her fear into my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're going to do as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide, and 
filled with tears. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family. We're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that it, her behavior grew better after that moment, but it didn't hurt. Choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, a lot of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to continue, I mean, to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes, snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn, and after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because it was, I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's, it's the message of outrageous Grace, like we don't deserve anything that Christ has given us. We don't deserve anything he's ever done for us. We don't deserve his love and his affection and his mercy, but because of grace, we have it. There is a world dying to hear about it. It's our responsibility to do something. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture again in Mark 2. Father, we... Thank you for the example of Christ going to the downtrodden, Lord, the, the downcast, the sinners, the, kind of the drudge of society that nobody else wanted to be around. As he goes, Father, and ministers and loves and, and shares the truth with these men and with these women, Father, may that be an example to us. Lord, just, just create within our heart a desire to share, a, a bigger desire to love, a bigger desire to go, Father. We want to serve you in, in great ways in all things, Father. Give us the strength and the courage and the ability to do that. And we'll praise your name for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. Altar is open. An opportunity for you to pray or respond as we sing together this morning. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.